Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or good night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast episode. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. I don't know how to intro this piece. Um, I think we're all equally excited. Uh, and now having done the interview, we're all equally, I don't know, what's the word? Pensive. Like in a pensive, introspective. I'm also treasuring. Feel like my work in the world. Pondering. Yeah, my work in the world is done. Like I've, <laughs> yeah, everything so now will be downhill from here. <laughs> I learned, I learned what I want to be when I grow up. That's what yes. I learned. I thought that multiple times uh, throughout, and we talked about this in the last episode, or like the I, that uh, idea of settling when you get mm-hmm. to a certain age and just being like, all right, I'm done. I'm just gonna kind of ride the. I'm gonna put it in cruise control and kind of ride this out. And then you see a guy like this who is 87. Is that 87? 80, 87. 87. I graduated and... in 89. <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> oh, okay. No. Sorry. Sorry. We're close. <laughs> um, but yeah, still trucking, still pushing, still like digging at things. Well, who is it? Who is it, Tim? I don't know. Mike Erie, who do we have on this episode today? Um. Let's just say we were given his personal cell number and we are now, I would say best friends with, uh, Bonnie, would you agree with this? With uh, Dr. Walter Brueggemann, who has written a book. The reality is that Bonnie might might actually be best friends with him in like a month or two. Of course. Just listen to the episode and wait for (laughs) the Gombas drop on someone new. Um, just wait, just I, wait. Was, were were we talking yesterday? Been, how weird would it have been if I had said, Funny. oh, my person, and then he would have been like, why didn't she not? Like, it would have been weird. So excuse, you'll, you know you'll, what? You'll hear Jealousy it. Jealousy takes it. many forms, Eerie. It does. It really does. And, um, and there is no doubt <laughs> Of the jealousy on my end. There is no doubt. Um, anyway, we are talking to Dr. Brueggemann about a book that he'd written about the coronavirus um, called mm-hmm. Virus as a Summons to Faith. And Which, by uh, the way, what did we do during quarantine? We didn't I, write books. No, I did Virus as a Summons to Ice Cream uh, more than anything, go. more than anything else. Tim, you were Virus as a Summons to what? I don't even know. Stress and anxiety. Perfect. And Bonnie, virus is a stress too. Or virus Aaron, is a, this is a summons, a, to summons to the Peloton bike. The Peloton yes. bike. There it is. There it is. We'll let, we'll let you at home well, be the judge as to which of those is healthiest. Um, so anyway, we have Dr. Brueggemann on today. And um, this this guy, th- there's a, we were just talking about it. There's a, there's a, a, a big difference between somebody who's a biblical scholar uh, and someone who's a biblical theologian. So when we had Matthew Bates on, there's a biblical scholar. Tim Mackey, a biblical scholar. Uh, Dr. Brueggemann is a biblical theologian. And you'll just hear the difference um, he's written, you know, a zillion books. I probably own at least 10 of them. And, uh, anyway, it was a really great interview and, um, I think you'll enjoy it. I think he's very thought provoking and interesting. And as we said, he's 87 and still alive and kicking baby. 
Bonnie, any mm-hmm. any yeah. forewarnings besides um, besides just testimony of your popularity? No, he uh, he also <laughs> talks about um, racism and white supremacy. Yes, and he does it in this beautiful way in prayer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, somehow he like hit all these major topics, and they all felt like they all flow. I mean, he's he was so good. Yep. It was yep. awesome. Yep, yeah. Those are not the, these are not difficult interviews at all. You just try to get no. out of the way. So anyway, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Um, you can find him online. His book is at Amazon and everywhere else. And um, again, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, we are thrilled today to be um, hosting uh, one of the preeminent uh, biblical scholars of our generation. And uh, Bonnie, how, help me find adjectives for how big a deal this is. Would you, uh, would you use the word incredible, <laughs> amazing? Um, what, what should we use to describe yeah, our guest today? Maybe incomprehensible. Ooh, um, the best ever. Yes, I mean, I'm so Handsome. excited. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, so we so we get to talk with Dr. Walter Brueggemann today, who mm-hmm. uh how many I've I've I know you've written over a hundred books. What's the official count? I don't think there is an official account. I think it's uh, a few over a hundred and uh at 87, I still have a couple uh, in press, um, <laughs> but I'm a, I'm very close to the caboose. No, I hope not. Um, <laughs> we we have very we have all very much benefited from your work and are grateful um, for the writings that have expanded our imaginations and how to engage current issues. And um, well, thank you. yeah, absolutely. And we hope you've got several more books in you. Um, the, the one we want to talk about a little bit today is, uh, virus as a summons to faith. And, um, that is, that is obviously brand new. How long did it take you to, to write that? Uh, obviously you had some time in quarantine, but, um, that was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a, it's a very small book, as you know, with a few little pieces. So I suppose it was about, uh, three weeks or a little more. Uh, I just did one little piece at a time and uh, had not thought it was going to be a book, but then I thought, well, we'll see what happens. So yeah. I sent it in and there it was. Yeah. And there and there it was. It just magically happens after a hundred plus, you just send them a manuscript and boom, out comes a book. Um, with, with all of the, there, there's been much theologizing about the pandemic these days. So, so we've heard um, it's God's judgment against sin. Um, it's the this is this is straight out of the book of Revelation. Uh, this is a dress rehearsal for Christian persecution. We've heard um, it's God's way of getting our attention and calling out individual sin. As you sought to engage. Um, with biblical fidelity, the the kind of where is God in the midst of this pandemic? Are those appropriate ways of seeing what God is doing? Well, I think you have to start with the 
with the awareness that the Bible is pre-scientific and it does not uh, immediately apply. We can't just read it one-on-one to our modern world. Okay. So if you accept those two premises, pre-scientific and no direct application, then it seems to me that we can think a lot of different things. And what I did was to take a pestilence in the Bible as a rough equivalent for the virus. And then I looked to see uh, what is said about the pestilence. And uh, the thing that struck me first about it uh, in uh, First and Second Chronicles, where my Bible hardly ever falls open, uh, <laughs> the, the, the pestilence uh, is presented as an occasion for deeper faith repentance and humility. Hmm. So I think that one can uh, kind of skirt the question about whether God did this and whether this is punishment and and rather ask the question, uh, how ought to be to be responding to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the response uh, is a call that our faith should be deeper. And I think that the way is open for deeper faith because what we are seeing is that our easier certitudes in our world have failed. Uh, Those certitudes represented by uh, capitalism and and all of those assumptions simply are not adequate uh, for this inscrutable event, so we are driven deeper. And uh, that was kind of uh, the track I took about this as I tried to look at a variety of texts. Mm There are texts, though, that that do that do see God um, leveling pestilence as punishment. What what would cause you to pause on that interpretation if someone were giving it today? Well, I I think we live in a scientific world, so I think we have to be very careful about how we make those claims. But I don't have any problem with thinking uh, that in in, in ways beyond our explanation, uh, that the virus is a judgment upon our on our pride, on our uh, self sufficiency, on our uh, uh, Western arrogance mm. about being able to have the Bible on our own terms, mm. and uh, what the virus is making clear to us is that we don't have the Bible on our own terms, uh, so we are driven. We are driven to ask questions about the awful holiness of God, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to pin that down into an equation or a formula. But as I said in one of those little pieces, yeah. we do peek over into that question, and uh, that occurs to us as modern people, even when we do not intend to think that way. No, that is exactly. So I think all kinds of people are being uh, pressed in those kinds of direction. So when you talk about uh, which is, uh, and Bonnie and Tim chime chime in. Um, that's so good. When you talk about having the Bible on our own terms, could you could you give a, a couple more sentences to what that means and looks like? Well, I don't. I don't. Uh, think that you can read something in the Bible and directly apply it. I think there is a a playful zone of interpretation 
American uh, in which we exercise a lot of freedom and a lot of imagination. And we ought to be aware that that's what we're doing. We, 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 the, the things we like about the Bible, we like to read directly across to our own time and place. And I think uh, that's, that's too easy and too simple. Uh, but uh, we, do get, we do get hints and clues and openings. Uh, uh, but I don't, I don't think we ought to commit uh, intellectual Harry Carey uh, in order to to make the Bible relevant. Oh, got it. That's excellent, excellent, excellent. When one of the things you identify um, in the first chapter are three different ways of explaining divine force. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love it if you'd go into those a little bit because I think that was a very that 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 frames this bigger question that we're kind yeah. of working around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I. Um, I thought I detected three trajectories. The first one is, uh, as you've mentioned, transactional, uh, in which God does bad things to people who do bad things. And there is no doubt in the, in the prophetic traditions of the Old Testament that God is said to operate that way. Uh, the second way that I identified, if you think about the plagues in uh, the book of Exodus against Pharaoh and Egypt, uh, that, that God uh, is presented as uh, doing these harsh things in order to accomplish God's purpose. And God's purpose in the, in the uh, book of Exodus is the emancipation of the Hebrew slaves. So you could imagine that the Creator God has these tools to work with. Yeah. And after those two, uh, I, I considered the, the book of Job and, and said uh, that sometimes the Bible uh, tries to face into God's raw holiness that defies all of our explanations and all of our categories, so that in the whirlwind speeches of Job, uh, what, what, the, what God says from the whirlwind to Job is, who do you think you are? You don't understand anything about this. And, and so I think... Uh, that the situation we are now in, uh, uh, as as quite different from the way we were before that, right. uh, that to think about God's raw holiness uh, that is loose in the world uh, is uh, an issue that we have to at least entertain. Yeah, even with our so so the Bible being pre-scientific, us being post-scientific, if you will, that that sort of scientificness. We're, none of us are content with that, right? We can give scientific explanations all day for the coronavirus, but we keep right. searching for something bigger. Why is that, do you That's think? Right. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. Why, um, do you th- why do you see that happening? Even so we can, uh, you know, we, we can analyze it and we have uh, di- uh, diagrams yeah. of it and we know how it interfaces yeah. with other cells, but yet that's but not I enough think, for us. I think we, I think we are created to ask ultimate questions. And uh, when we dare ask ultimate questions, uh, that pushes us even beyond our scientific certitudes yeah. or, or, or our scientific wonderments uh, to ask, uh, to, to really ask unaskable questions. Right. Uh, and, and I think we are, in a, we are in something of a circumstance like that now. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. Why, um, Bonnie, Tim, anything to add so far? 
Not yet. I'm just taking notes. <laughs> Even though I have a paper of notes I took on the book. <laughs> so this is <laughs> that's all I have. <laughs> one, of the, one of the interesting suggestions um, you make in, in another snippet of the book is when David chooses pestilence as he's under judgment and he's given, I think, three options. Yeah. And one of those is to um, uh, have pestilence unleashed for three days. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's right. What do you do with that text? Because you, you take it a very interesting direction kind of by the end of that chapter. Yep. I'd love for you to get into that. Well, I should, I should uh, say, first of all, uh, Mike, that uh, there's an error in my book on page 25. And I, I misread a text that I wrote reader has since pointed out to me but what the what the text says uh is that uh uh, god uh, that david had an option of a long famine or a war or three days of pestilence and he chose three days of pestilence because he said i would rather uh risk the mercy of god than i would human warfare or human famine. Mm. Uh, so even in the midst of those awful choices that he's given, uh, he trusts in the mercy of God. And what I mistakenly said uh, in my book is that there's no report of his having got the pestilence. That, that is simply wrong because I missed the text. But, but even so, when you look at how the pestilence gets uh, uh, enacted against David, uh, the, the way it is described, even that is permeated with God's mercy. So that David is portrayed for all of his uh, uh, cunning and calculation. Uh, he really is a, a character of incredible faith. And he believes that in the long run, the mercy of God is more generous and more reliable than he's going to get from any human agent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, that easily translates into the claims that we make for the gospel, that it is finally the, the graciousness and the mercy of God upon which we have to stake our lives. Yes, yes, yes. When the, when the unknowable, unsearchable holiness of God is... It's always been at work in the world, but there are times we see it more clearly. What is the proper what is the proper response of the people of God? What, what do you see in in the Hebrew scriptures that points us in in the ways in which faithful response or faithful witness looks? How does that look? Well, I I think it it begins in humility with with the recognition that we are that we are penultimate and we are not ultimate. We are not self-sufficient we are not self-made and then if you begin with the assumption that god is uh, generous then the proper human response is generous gratitude in response and the way i extrapolate that then if if we are to practice gratitude the way we practice gratitude is to have policies and practices that share our common resources with all of our neighbors and particularly neighbors in need so i think policies like that are exactly a response to what we confess about the goodness and the generosity and the graciousness of God. 
And so, I, I think that our that our common uh, parsimony uh, about public matters is a very poor response <laughs> to the generosity of God. Ah, so so we're recording this um, in, in the midst of not just the pandemic and not just economic trouble, but in the midst of really deep um, and and hard racial tension in our country. Uh, yeah. Do you see that that tension as evidence of the failure of kind of what you're speaking, the failure to enact policies and laws that are that are grounded in gratitude towards a generous God? I do. I think that our policies are still driven by white supremacy, which assumes that white people are entitled to all of the goodies. It's a legacy of, of slavery and, and all of that. And uh, I have no doubt uh that that we will continue this racist crisis until we come to terms with that mm-hmm. and find new ways of uh of uh, reparations and and uh and reinstalling uh people of color uh into the economy and into the culture of our society mm-hmm. so i think that's a uh, heavy lifting and hard work uh that we have to do well, yep. as an 87-year-old man, you have you have watched. I mean, th- these aren't the first upheavals that you've seen um, over this subject. What's that? What's that like watching this episode as opposed to things you've seen in the past? Well, I think in in my lifetime, uh, I was born uh, during the Depression, uh, and then I was young during the Second World War. Uh, and then I witnessed the Vietnam War and how that tore us apart. Uh, and I, I think we've, we've had a, a number of crises uh, that have been an invitation for us to rethink public policy and all of that. And most of the time we have refused that invitation. Uh, but my sense, as many people are saying, is that this crisis cuts deeper uh, than any of those crises, uh, and it is a it is a great invitation to us uh, to uh, rethink from the ground up who we want to be uh, as a blessed community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the work now in front of us. Yeah, and and hard work indeed. Bonnie, Tim, yeah. anything? Um, I was just thinking about this, a friend of, oh, we, we have a mutual friend, Rabbi Nahum. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. I work with him for spiritual I, direction. I talked to him yesterday. Oh, there you go. So did I. Yeah. So we were both on the call with him at <laughs> yeah. different times. Um, and we had him on the podcast too. Um, we talked to him over Passover and about his book. But he sent me a list of... Um, white supremacy culture and like a list of ways that it shows like characteristics where it shows up um and then anecdotes to those things like we see it in um, businesses or we see it in church organizations and one of the things on that list is it says worship of the written word so um it says like some of how that pans out if it's not in a memo it doesn't exist um the organization doesn't take into account or value other ways in which information gets shared and so i was reading that and i was thinking about what you said about how 
our favorite way to read the Bible is to basically just say one-to-one relationship with how it was right. written and how it is now. Right. Would you say that some of the some of this culture we're seeing that we have to undo starts with the sacred work of acknowledging that, of the way that we read the text, that maybe we need to read it a different way? And I if do. so, what would be the fruit of that? Well, the fruit of it, I think, is to pay attention to, to the long tradition of oral interpretation as distinct from written interpretation uh, in which uh, pe- people of color have long been doing oral interpretation of the Bible, mm-hmm. even though it's basically white people who have done the written interpretation. Yeah. And I think in the, in the Bible itself, uh, there's a wonderful example of that in the book of Kings, because in the in the book of Kings, you have this written record of all the kings, and they just go like that over and over. And right in the middle of it are these oral accounts of Elijah and Elisha. And if you look at uh, white interpretation, uh, by and large, the tendency has been to say these stories of Elijah and Elisha are not reliable because they're just legends. Mm. And so we dismiss it because it's not written stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think eventually uh, the church has to rely on oral communication rather than written communication, which I suppose is why Zoom is so good, because you can do oral interpretation yeah. with each other. <laughs> yeah, you really can. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Yep. And, of course, the same is true uh, uh, in the New Testament. But basically, what we have about Jesus are oral legends and stories about what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got written down, but what the church always has to do is to try to go back to the oral articulation of that, which gives you great playfulness and freedom about how you understand them. Mm, yeah, because I think it seems to me the the written and the exact um, denominations using a very certain translation yeah. or a very certain thing, in some ways that really serves empire. It does, it, it does indeed. Certitude is always a practice of the empire. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's true in Star Wars too. I just want to throw that I out there. Just, I was w- wishing we could play the music right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, excellent, excellent, excellent. Tim, you want to throw anything in? No, I, I really, um, this idea that we're kind of built as inquisitive people, I can't remember how you worded it earlier, but that we ask these questions, and but that we tend to also kind of be lazy in that where we just want to take the text and make it work for whatever is happening right, now. Right. I really appreciate and enjoy this dance, at like trying to understand the deeper facets of faith or a deeper faith that we're called to, and that so much of that is continuing to ask questions, but part of asking questions is doing the work of how it should be read and doing the work of how it should be pursued. And I like that because I think there's a there's a really intimate dance there between the way that God reveals and what is required of our pursuit in that revelation, I guess. Right, right. Um, I've been enjoying, I listened to a couple conversations with you and um, also with uh, Eugene Peterson about kind of the use of poetry and the prophets and um, metaphor and the way that God speaks uh, kind of cryptically in this way that requires us to to listen and then to like kind of dig at it. 
Right. And I love the way that poets have kind of have served that part throughout human history on the human side of the fence of like, yeah, yeah. we're going to build words and we're going to take the tensions and the struggles of the time period and we're going to wring them out and get kind of the, the solid blood out of whatever's happening in that time period. And right. you can go through history and wrestle with the poets in that way. And I love that idea with the prophets and that the God speaks that way, that there's this poetry that takes involvement and it takes like you're required to take a breath and to kind of pick at it and sit with it. And so there's not much of a question there as much as I've really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that in the text that you have here. Uh, I enjoyed them. The conversations I've listened to Um, poetry was like a big piece of my thesis in school and something that I teach. So being able to take a practical thing that I love so much and be like, no, this is the way that God talks to us. There is poetry through everything that we're doing is a, it's kind of a magical, it's a magical element of this divine relationship that we have. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm loving it. And I, and I, I oh, go ahead. If you think about it, so much of the Bible itself is in poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And on Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, uh, what conventional interpretation does is to always try to flatten the poetry into one meaning. Yeah. yeah. And uh, bad business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that and, is I, bad and I like business. that too. Like I, I, I teach at a university here and, and I'll, I'll, I'll shoehorn poetry into uh, the conversations because it helps uh, students in a small way learn how to do like uh, inductive reading and kind of how to really listen to how much one word carries within a sentence or a stanza or whatever. And so it's been really helpful. And I like that idea that in church or in study, if we can teach people how to read like super intentionally, that it doesn't take like a a brilliant poetic mind. It just takes sometimes just patience and an an intentional spirit to find the way that God is really kind of picking at something. It's just, I don't know. It's very encouraging for me. Yeah. We also oh, I'm see. Glad we're doing, I'm glad we're doing the same work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we also see the language of protest all mm-hmm. over the the scriptures, and we see it obviously in our culture these days. Could you speak to the difference between protest and lament versus kind of the complaining of the Israelites? What separates? Because it, it seems uh, it seems like lament is one of the most fitting responses of the people of God these days to what they're seeing in the world. So, what characterizes lament? Well, lament is is uh, really important, uh, but taken by itself, lament uh, is an act of resignation that accepts the pain and the loss. Protest is an act of hope. It acknowledges the trouble, but insists that things have to change. Mm. So in protest, there is no resignation, but it is an insistence that something new uh, must emerge here. Mm. And I think uh, there are a few laments in the Bible. Uh, David lamenting over the death of Jonathan is one of those. But for the most part, uh, uh, what we call laments in the book of Psalms are, are not acts of resignation uh, because they usually end in an imperative asking and trusting that God will do something new. So that makes a, a very different uh, 
act of rhetoric. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes. And and that newness, as you demonstrate in the last chapter of the book, is always preceded by groaning. By, I'd by, love, by groaning, the yes, groaning language. Yes. Um, I'd yeah. love for you to, if you wouldn't mind, spend a little bit of time on that that idea that 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 the virus could simply be an expression of all creation groaning. Mm. Well, I think if you if you go a, a pre scientific way that that believes that all all creatures, not just human creatures, but all creatures, are from God and back to God then it's easy to see that that disorder in the in the life of the world in all of its forms uh, can speak back to god in pain and in hope and in expectation that god will do some healing and some transforming and eventually will make all things new mm-hmm. it seems to me that's elemental to uh, how biblical faith works exactly mm-hmm. so Yep. Yep. But one of the temptations you warn against is rushing through the groaning and the the pains of labor to to get That's to right. new creation. Why is that a concern? Well, because you have to you have to dwell there a while. And one of the places you can hear that if you listen to the to the really slow music of the African American church, they they sing many laments. And they're very slow-paced about doing it because you have to dwell there and you have to linger there and you can't rush past it because if you rush past it, uh, you are probably engaged in denial rather than Mm -hmm. hope. And uh, uh, Mm -hmm. I think Paul has this uh, strange business in uh, uh, Romans 5 where he says, uh, patience produces suffering, and suffering produces hope. Right. It's astonishing that suffering, uh, out loud suffering, becomes a matrix for hope for a new possibility. It's mm. astonishing. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah. is that because yeah. in protest, hope is embedded? Hope is what? Hope is embedded in protest? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yep, yep, right. Well, back and back to the you can't rush it like you have to dwell there. I can confidently say as the only woman in the room, that is true of giving birth at all. The the baby's (laughs) coming when the baby's coming. (laughs) There's something you can do about that. (laughs) It's just true. (laughs) They're called birth, birth pangs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, this is this is fantastic. Tim Rabani, anything else you'd like to hit? Gosh, no, there's so much to dwell on. I think mm-hmm. I what would you say? Um, like I love everything we talked about here. Um, but I'm aware that so much of it is hitting me a certain way because I'm removed from it. I don't know anybody that suffered from COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also I have friends that are part of the of the black community, but I am not black and no one in my family is. So some of it, I can think on it in a way that's removed. Yeah. So when it when all of these um, things, when they begin to feel really personal, um, what would you say to someone who's in that position? It's good. 
Well, I think I think you need neighbors. I think you need neighbors uh, to help you tell the truth and to help you suffer mm-hmm. and to help you hope. I, I think at the at the hard places in our life, uh, we need companions, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, we really are with our uh, quarantining and all of that. It feels like we're under house arrest and we're, we're isolated from each other, uh, but being connected to each other uh, is really important. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Excellent. Excellent. Tim, any, any last words from you, bud? Yeah, I know. I don't want to keep you too long. I want to ask just one little question. Um, a conversation that we've been having quite a bit through this time period has been about prayer, and we've had a lot of different um, approaches or opinions or I don't know, however you want to describe it, but, and uh, that was a chapter that I read in here a couple times that you, where you kind of wrestle with the idea of what it means to pray mm-hmm. or what role prayer plays in this. Yeah. And I was curious if you could just give a little bit, because <clears throat> we've been having that conversation, just a little bit about like, what do we pray right now? And what does prayer do? And how does God interact with these prayers? Uh, we touched a little bit with lament, but just in general, I think a lot of people yeah. have just been like, what, I don't know what to pray. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the assumption of a biblical prayer is that that the conversation we continue to have with God is the most important practice of our life. So that conversation has to be no holes barred about truth telling mm-hmm. and about hope telling. Uh, so uh, our wow. prayers. Our prayers include thanks, and they also include petition and intercession uh, on the, the assumption that everything in our life has to be referred back to the goodness of God. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, sophisticated people pray very timid prayers because uh, we don't really think anything is happening there. Uh, but this is a this is a action. This is not a pretend transaction. Mm. Uh, so it's asking uh, what are the what are the deepest things in my life uh, about which I need to be honest. Mm. I'm so glad you asked that, That's Tim. Awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Brueggemann, listen, we bless you and thank you. We are so grateful for your work and for taking some time with us today. Um, you can pick up the book, obviously, on Amazon, in either digital format or um, uh, there's a hard copy, too. And then um, uh, where can people find you online? Well, apparently there is a website that a, a friend of mine runs for me, but I I never look at it. I, yeah. I think it must be WalterBergman.com or something like that. I nice. don't know. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm not exactly a techie guy. Hey, but you're Zooming with us, so we're grateful. We're grateful for that. Yes. Listen, many blessings upon you. Stay safe and uh, keep writing, okay? Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, you too. very Thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye now. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported 
by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Vox Podcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash Vox Podcast, on Instagram at Fox Podcast, and on Twitter at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.